This is Women Tech Charge. Subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcasts. This is Women Tech Charge. I am your host, Anne-Marie Imaphodon. And this week, we are joined by a woman who is the triple A. She is an attorney, an author, an advocate. She is Rabia Chowdhury. I turned off the TV and I went up to my laptop. It was like 1 a.m. at night. And I said, let me see if I can find a journalist who worked on Adnan's story in 1999. And so I found Sarah Koenig, who created the podcast Serial, which became an international phenomenon. Welcome to the podcast, Rabia. Hi, Anne-Marie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for giving the time um, and joining us as well. Again, another international podcast. We're being joined um, from the suburbs of Washington, D.C., where Rabia has assured me that it is both cold and sunny, um, which compared to where we are, where I am now in, in London, it's it's been raining for about three days straight, what feels like 30 days straight. We're going to start this story at the beginning, because it's a very good place to start. Rabia, where did you start off your life? Where did where did your the triple A uh, begin from? Well, the triple A, the first A of, of that triple A is uh, is attorney, and so I I kind of began my career journey going to law school, um, having been a failed medical student because if you're South Asian and my family's from Pakistan, you are expected to go to medical school. That just wasn't going to happen. So I went to law school, disappointed everybody. But I began my uh, law career doing um, immigration work and civil rights work, and uh, it was immediately kind of in the aftermath of 9/11. So there was a lot happening in the country at the time and in the community. Um, mm. And while I was in law school, uh, a young man that I had known since he was a child named Adnan Sayed, who was 17 at the time, was arrested and charged with murdering a classmate. A jury convicted Adnan Syed in 2000 of murdering his high school sweetheart. A witness says Adnan Syed was here at this library at the exact moment the prosecutors say he was out committing murder. His murder case became a national obsession. And now Adnan Syed is back in the spotlight, this time denied a new trial by Maryland's highest court. And had you known Adnan before all of this happened or it was more the, the relationship he had with your brother? Yeah, I mean, I only knew Adnan as my... My, my little brother's best friend. I mean, to the extent that you can know a younger sibling's best friend, you know, he would be hanging around my parents' house. He was a lot younger than me, six, seven years younger than me. Um, I lived in another state about an hour away. So I would see him once in a while, my parents. I knew his parents. Um, they lived in the same subdivision as my parents. So yeah, I had known him since he was 12 or 13 years old. And while the case was going on, was, was there a particular role that you played kind of as it was happening the first time around? My role really was to be there to support the family, to support um, Adnan. I was a, a student. I had no way to get involved professionally, but I was the closest thing the community had to a lawyer. So what I did try to do was help the family, like when they would go meet the lawyer, when they would try to figure out what's actually happening in the process and try to translate the process for them. And then the following couple of decades, you know, as we were going through appeal after appeal, Appeals are so limited. They're so rarely granted. It was so frustrating that finally at some point I said, you know what? I give up. I give up on the courts to give us justice. I want to go to the media. And I really did feel and believe that a journalist would be able to to understand this story and find new evidence in the story in a way that lawyers just they weren't looking at the case in the right way. Um, and so I found Sarah Koenig, who uh, took a year to investigate the case and then uh, created the podcast Serial. 
For the last year, I've spent every working day trying to figure out where a high school kid was for an hour after school one day in 1999. It's time for a break. Send me a message using the hashtag WomenTechCharge and please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to podcasts. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How did you find Sarah? How was that someone that came across your path? I literally, I was watching a documentary called West of Memphis on Netflix about a wrongful conviction case of three young men out in Memphis for many, many years ago. Mm. And every time I watched a documentary in the case, it changed my perspective. And I turned off the TV and I said, man, the me- like media makes such a difference, you know, and, and uh, the director in that documentary was able to find new evidence that helped to free those young men. And I literally just, I just turned off the TV and I went up to my laptop. It was like 1 a.m. at night. And I said, let me see if I can find a journalist who worked on Adnan's story in 1999. And um, I found Sarah Koenig's name. She had written an article about Adnan's attorney, not about Adnan's case, but about Adnan's attorney back in the late 90s, or I think maybe it was the early 2000s, in which she had written about his attorney getting disbarred. So I said, well, I don't know who this is. Let me look her up. Maybe she's still in the Baltimore area. And it turned out she was now a producer for This American Life. And so what was the gap between uh, that happening and then you uh, meeting up with, with Sarah and, and Serial being kicked off? Oh, for 14 years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So that's, that's quite a big gap. It was a big gap because we really all those years trusted in the appeals process. And we mm. just thought, um, OK, it'll, it, not this appeal. It'll be the next one. It'll be the next one. Until finally I realized it's not going to be any of them. The podcast then takes off um can you think back to maybe what you thought would happen versus what then eventually happened with serial I had no I mean no idea I had never heard a podcast before and and I really thought what Sarah (laughs) Koenig was going to do was investigate this case and make a one episode this American life which was an ongoing show Uh already just one episode of this American life and then she told me well into her investigation that we're going to create a podcast series, 10 or 12 episodes. And I was like, what is that? What is a podcast? (laughs) And 
Um, and then I thought, well, who's going to listen to that? You know, no one's going to listen to that. I, I don't even know what that is. I thought, okay, it is what it is. But the truth is this. In many respects, I kind of didn't care what the final product of her investigation looked like in terms of the media. I wanted to know, what did you find? That's all that I cared about. So I was like, do whatever you want. But then it exploded. I mean, the first week they dropped two episodes and my world completely changed. Um, it was just from all over the world. It was just constant. I mean, those three months were some of the most stressful months I've ever endured. <laughs> the media and the, the, the stuff online. It was just crazy, crazy. And that was that was a, a podcast that then grew and, and many people will have, will have heard of Serial. Many of them may, may have listened to it. Um, and it, it's a, a new format. It's definitely opened up a new world. I think it's opened up podcasting itself, but also the idea of, of using media. I think that, like you mentioned, the documentaries is something we've had for so long. But there's something about a podcast that's a little bit more intimate. There's something about a podcast that allows people to kind of process a little bit more and think things through. Is is that something you you've kind of got as part of feedback or that you experienced, I guess, as you as you got into the world of podcasts? Oh, absolutely. I mean like, you know, Serial did a lot not just for the world of podcasting, but for the world of true crime. I mean I it's I, I think of Serial as like the podcast that launched a, a thousand podcast ships. I mean after Serial, so many other uh journalists and activists have used podcasting for advocacy and numerous podcasts have now helped solve cases has have helped exonerate people. I mean, after serial ended, um, mm. you know, people were not really satisfied because they said, well, what now, what happens mm. to his story next? And uh, I mean, frankly, serial, they were great journalists, great storytellers, but they weren't investigators, like okay. criminal investigators. So, you know, but there were people who were taking a closer look at the case. They brought so many resources to the case, other lawyers and investigators who wanted to help Adnan. And so I ended up teaming up with two other lawyers um, and deciding, okay, we've done a, t you know, the three of us were writing a lot about the case and yeah. we wanted to make sure that people were hearing all the other evidence that Serial wasn't able to really Pick explain or yeah. even touch. Mm. And we turned that into a podcast called Undisclosed. Welcome to the very first episode of Undisclosed, The State versus Adnan Sayed. Today's episode is Adnan's Day. And we did almost, I think, 25 or 30 episodes on Adnan's case. Um, and so what I learned was people are willing to stay there for the long haul. We don't, our attention spans are not that terrible. <laughs> so it's, Serial did a lot for this entire space. And this is, this is uh, you taking that kind of digital platform or that, that idea of podcasting, um, and being able to to use that alongside kind of what you're doing in terms of investigation. Was there anything else uh, or any other use of technology that you saw that was being used in Adnan's case to to draw on new evidence? Is there anything else, I mean, aside from the podcasting and um, technology wise that um, excited you or surprised you or helped you? Social media has completely changed the game on these issues. I mean, we're able to use social media and digital media, not just to tell the story, but to gather resources. You know, we've done crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. We've raised a couple million dollars for his defense. We have used that to connect with experts we normally would never connect with. Um, Undisclosed went on to do, we've done like 15 other cases since Adnan's case because other lawyers and innocence projects and people have reached out to us and we have over the years used um, this technology that connects us to make it easy for witnesses to come forward, to, to contact us, to give us new evidence and to brainstorm when we can't figure something out. The connectivity is just has changed um, 
how we're approaching all these cases. I guess you're, you're normally on the lawyer side or you're trained to be on the lawyer side. In terms of police forces, is there anything exciting that you've seen or any um, surprises that you've had in, in bringing these technologies to police forces? Well, you know, the truth is in many of these cases, because we're talking about wrongful convictions and when you have wrongful convictions, you often have great lapses in police work that led to those wrongful convictions. Mm. So we don't we rarely work directly with with the police. But, you know, some of the some of the stuff that ha- that ha- that has happened mm. uh, is that there's been great leaps in technology like DNA technology, genetic genealogy that helps investigators and the police you know, who might find DNA, but it doesn't match anybody. And so what do you do? And now there's these genetic databases that you can plug that into and see, okay, is there somebody out there who might be related to whoever left this DNA behind at a crime scene? Um, so the technology on the front, on the forensic end has changed dramatically. Uh, and that's another thing that as we're looking at cases that are 15, 20, sometimes 30 years old, we can do things with that evidence now that we couldn't do 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Many things have moved on in, in 30 years Um I guess in general in life, but I think with technology moves so quickly that that you're right. Being able to take that old evidence and and apply new techniques to it, I'm sure, must have um, changed so many lives just from from these kind of wrongful convictions. The police are, you know, open to using some of the newer technology, and also, by the way, debunking some of the old theories. I mean, there mm. was a whole field of junk forensic science that we know now. <laughs> None of it makes sense. I mean, things like bite mark tech, you know, bite mark forensics was a thing. And uh, and, and so over time, we know what works. And For what how won't. long was that something? Bite mark technology forensics? Oh, I mean, it's still in some places. It still exists. I mean, blood spatter experts. These are things. Well, it's not really a thing. The way that hair analysis was done. There's so I mean, ballistic analysis has changed dramatically. I mean, for for decades, I mean, actually this entire century, the past century, the police have said, hey, if we find some bullets, we know how to match it to mm, a gun. Yeah. It's highly, highly unreliable technology. And so mm. we know that now. And so you can use it. You can you can challenge that kind of evidence in court. You're listening to Women Tech Charge. Subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. So there's been there's been lots. I know you're you're an attorney, you're an, an author, you're an advocate, you're you're a woman in tech. I think we're we're gonna call you someone that's been able to use technology to do all sorts of things and, and change things. I wanted to talk to a little bit about your work with integrating communities. Um how you know what to what extent has technology um informed the work that you've been doing in that space? Nine eleven happened right after um, I got out of law school. I literally just as I was graduating from law school and um, that put me in a position that a lot of young American Muslims found themselves, which is like suddenly having to deal with these community issues where on one hand you have to protect the rights of your community. But on the other hand, you also have to take some of these threats seriously Mm. and balancing that very carefully while making sure that people's, um, you know, civil rights are, are protected yeah. at the same time national security is insured. Mm. So, you know, I I began a firm called the Safe Nation Collaborative under the Obama administration. Um, and what we did through that was to train a community integration and, um, and not even integration so much, but I would say collaboration, um, okay. mm-hmm. uh, working with certain state agencies, not federal agencies, but state agencies, basically getting just knowing who is in your community, who are the law enforcement agencies in your community, who do you call if there's something going on? And also, on the other hand, 
equipping local law enforcement um, with with proper education about our communities instead of like kind of the hateful rhetoric that they and, and the scary stuff that they found online. I mean, believe mm. me, uh, I remember one time meeting a police um, intelligence officer who told me that anytime she needed to learn anything about Islam or Muslims, she just Googled it. Okay. And I thought, okay, that's why we're in so much trouble here. So, <laughs> you know, we, I, so we use technology in that front because we uh, incorporated social media into it. We, a lot of it was done um, online and, uh, and, and, you know, it was just having those tools um, just makes it just so much easier. I mean, there were times when I was able to demonstrate, for example, in front of a, an audience of Muslim parents, how easy it was for their children to pick up a cell phone and basically be chatting with somebody who's like an ISIS mm. member across mm. the world in less than 10 minutes. I think this 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 was something that we definitely... Um, so I'm from East London um, and the, the ISIS, the three kind of girls that went... Um, as the the ISIS brides, uh, however many years ago it was, I think this is definitely something that's that's shaken the community. Where I think from the outside it looks almost as if it's something that's a problem within the community, whereas lots of of local mums and dads are saying, you know, they didn't realise that this was what was capable. This is not really how they've raised their children. It's not the values that they've given them. But it'd been these kind of outside influences using digital for bad as much as we can use digital for good to to implant ideas and, and yeah all kinds of things going on my perspective always has been that it's no different than than the kind of grooming that these groups do whether it's a white nationalist group mm. whether it is a uh, islamic jihadist group whether mm. it's any kind of a, you know mm. ideologically problematic group is no different than like the kind of grooming that sexual predators do online mm. uh, so when these young people get caught up in this stuff it's not about values it's about their uh, their vulnerability to predators. Mm. And so when you frame it like that, you then you stop demonizing communities and parents who have mm. no idea and you start helping to equip them to protect their children. When mm. I talked to parents about this issue, when I did talk about, you know, when, when we ran this program, I said, this is about you protecting your children. I don't care about the police. I don't, I'm not, I'm here to talk about national security. In the same way you'd want to protect your 15-year-old daughter from a sexual predator online, you mm. want to protect her from somebody who's going to convince her to Extreme travel to yeah. Syria online. Mm. So it's it's fascinating to know that you're you're a lawyer that's been able to take this all in. Is that is that something that when you look to the next generation of of lawyers um, and and the, the kind of legal industry, is that something that you're seeing more and more people being able to take advantage of of digital skills or digital platforms, or do you find that actually quite big parts of the industry are still trying to to hold back from from this and, and trying to do things the old way? You know, lawyers uh, don't like change. <laughs> we love, <laughs> we love the old ways. It is hard to get lawyers to understand the importance of these tools and to learn how to use them. And part of the problem is that there hasn't been. I mean, like you know, uh, lawyers are always governed by all these different um, ethical guidelines in every single jurisdiction. There haven't really been any developed around social media tools and digital media tools. Um, so that has to happen. I think that's what really scares lawyers because they don't know what's okay and what's not okay. How do you protect your clients? How do you not tell too much information? Uh, but it's interesting, just this past year, there's an organization in New York called the Brooklyn Defenders, and they are defense attorneys um, and also public defenders mm -hmm. who, for the first time ever, organized a three-day conference teaching lawyers, criminal defense attorneys, 
how to use social media and digital media tools for their okay. for their clients and for their for their work. Mm. Um, I mean, it's amazing that it's 2019. It's the first time that somebody's thought this is a good idea to do. <laughs> I've been arguing for years now that law schools have to teach lawyers better communication skills, not okay. just the substance, but the form as well. Right. So I think this is a new frontier in all of this. Um, we're gonna we're gonna figure it out as we go along. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of resistance to it. But we. We, ha- we have to move with the times. The other discussion I've been a part of quite a lot in the UK is um, the, the laws and that we have surrounding a lot of the use of these platforms. So it's something we've spoken about a little bit on the podcast um, this season. But kind of when we talk about online abuse, when we talk about a lot of these digital platforms and the things that are happening on being allowed to happen using them that wouldn't necessarily work or be legal kind of face-to-face or in any of the platforms that we've already had. I always find it quite interesting that you can't just take, you know, what we have in the real world and apply it to digital platforms. It almost has to be rewritten to say it's not okay to use these words in real life and we already have that as a law, but we now need to rewrite that in and say if you tweet them, it's not okay. Or if you, you know, communicate that using that digital platform, then that's going to be taken as evidence against you. Oh, right. Absolutely. I mean, like it's, uh, you know, it's further complicated in the United States because we have the First Amendment, which, you know, free speech and <laughs> the free speech that the First Amendment is meant, meant to protect is almost always ugly, offensive speech. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's not a crime to be offensive and ugly. But then what do you do when you have tweets that are incendiary that, you know, incite violence or incite some other kind of actual criminal activity and that's happened? And how do you deal with that? And so the courts are having to navigate all these kind of difficult situations. I mean, there was a case not long ago where a young woman um, over text message, not even in person, encouraged her boyfriend to commit suicide. Yeah, and he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so can you use that as is that evidence? And um, and with 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 President Trump, are his tweets presidential communications, official presidential communications? Um, you know, all of these things the courts are now going to have to grapple with. And one of the scarier parts of that is that a lot of these courts are, are, are full of people who are not even familiar with the tools. They don't use them. They're, they're older folks who just really have, have never been on social media. They have to understand how all of it works. Um, you know, but, but I think, you know, over generations that'll change too, you know, in about 15, 20 years, we might have to revisit some of the decisions that have been are being made today. I'm hoping so. I think I think we're seeing this a little bit with um, people like AOC and, and her questioning. And I know there's a new round of senators and people who are, who understand a little bit more and are, and are poking those questions. I think from our side, maybe based in the UK, there's I've always had this prevailing sense that we we need more people in control who kind of understand maybe some of this or aren't afraid to pick up the skills I think you know if we look just at your trajectory and it's now become quite digital even though you're still law so how do we allow people to know that it's a skill that they can take on to be literate in this world to be powerful in this world to have influence in this world but also to to protect and to to be used as a change or to be used as a as a force for good um in this world whether you're a doctor whether you're a lawyer or whatever you might be um, so you've gone a little bit full circle, I guess. You were kind of spurred on by the Netflix um, documentary that you were watching. Um, you're now working on projects with, with HBO and with Netflix. Can you tell us a little bit about, about those? Sure. So, you know, I 
wrote a book about the case in which you know Adnan contributed to that book, the subject of, of all of this. It became a New York Times bestseller. Uh, it was optioned for a documentary series, which I helped executive produce for HBO earlier this year, and it also aired in the UK. And so, you know, the interesting thing about that documentary series was that it was directed by Amy Berg, and Amy Berg was the director of the Netflix series I had seen the night that I reached out to Sarah Koenig full all those circle. years ago. There we go. It yeah. <laughs> it's been amazing. And so uh, that series came out this year. Um, and, you know, again, Amy Berg, like she did in the previous series or documentary I'd seen, did find more evidence for the case. Mm. Uh, it's been, it, it was three years in the making. Um, and then with Netflix, uh, Netflix, you know, a lot of traditional media companies and Netflix is not exactly traditional, but it's been around long enough now that, but they're realizing the power of podcasting. So they have are now launching a new podcast series to help support their original, um, productions. And they, so this year they asked me to write a script for one of those, one of the episodes of this new podcast series. Um, and the episode will air on December 4th. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I believe on, if you go to netflix.com or you just go to your Netflix or go to your podcast app and search for Netflix, um, the Netflix podcast series will pop up. Um, and it will be called because I watched, that's the name of the podcast. Okay. And my episode, the one that I have scripted is about the series called Delhi crime. We've not got much longer in the episode. I wanted to just throw something to you as a lawyer who's now found herself increasingly technical and digital. And that's about the future. What do you think the future holds for the law profession? And um, I speak all the time. I get to speak to, to all kinds of people. And I, um, there's, a, there's a gig I've done twice, actually, in the last two months to a, a group of lawyers. And I always enjoy, you know, talking about um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, 3D printing, all these kind of tech trends and helping relate it to, you know, what, what the legal profession is, is looking at and grappling with. Um, one example that I almost always try and show um, is uh, the algorithm Do Not Pay that helps anyone who's got a parking ticket, it's kind of a robot lawyer, that you give it the details of your case and it, it um, does the appeal for you. You kind of print and then you send it off and there's no interaction with the with the lawyer as part of the process. Um, you know, there's lots of surveys that are done about robots taking our jobs and how kind of the middle layer of, of the legal system is one of those places that's most at risk. What do you think the change is going to be? What's the gap at the moment um, and how much do you think, you know, this fourth industrial revolution, as we, we tend to call it, how do you think that's going to change the legal profession? How can you see it changing the legal profession already? I think the biggest change that's going to happen is suddenly we are going to see more power to the people. Uh, okay. and, and one of those reasons is because the average person can now document things they're seeing put it online and then demand answers from the system, which they couldn't do before. Mm. People, the average person wants to know more about how the system works. One of the most remarkable things that's happened in the last five years since we've been doing Undisclosed um, is that we get hundreds of messages from listeners who are like, I never understood what was going on. I, I did not understand the system because the law is closed. Lawyers like to use language that nobody understands. We mm. want to use procedures that nobody understands. We mm. want to stay up in our ivory towers mm. uh, while mere mortals have to clamor for our uh, assistance. But yeah. I think digital um, digital media and technology is going to give power back to citizens um, in terms of their legal rights, understanding the system, 
um, getting support. And I think that's a good trend. I think I think our systems need accountability. And this is one way it's going to happen. Fantastic. Power to the people. What a good place to, to end. So uh, where can people find you if they would like to get involved, if they'd like to feel that power or get clued up on the tools that are available to them? What would you suggest? I'm always on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is Rabia Squared. So you can always find me there personally. My mm-hmm. po- Our podcast, I have two podcasts. One's the 45th, which is a weekly political podcast uh, about the 45th administration, the Trump administration. The other one is Undisclosed, which is a long form deeply investigative legal podcast about wrongful convictions in which we work directly with defendants and their families and their lawyers. Um, and, uh, and there's always a mystery, a whodunit at the heart of it. So, uh, you can search for both of those online on any of your podcast apps and follow, follow us there. And as always support all the local, local organizations that are doing this work anyways. Fantastic. Thank you for joining me this evening, this afternoon, this morning, wherever you are in the world. (laughs) Um, thanks so much for sharing your story. You can subscribe to Women Tech Charge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.